1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, there's a, there a sign on the office building where the newer executives were, were uh, housed. The sign on the wall said this, remember what the mama well told the baby well. When you get to the top and start letting off steam, that's the time you're most likely to be harpooned. Well, behind uh, the immense problems of the church at Corinth was their sin of pride. They, they were thinking they were the biggest fish in the sea, and when they came to the surface to spout off, Paul harpooned them. And we see that in our section of Scripture today. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about pride. And uh, yet, uh, there's not that we say a lot about pride today. I, I have all sorts of books and articles in my library on all sorts of subjects, uh, theologically and practically and so forth. But I don't have a lot on pride. Uh, pride just doesn't seem to show up in those kinds of books for some reason. But you know what? Maybe the reason is that pride is so interwoven, interlaced in every, everything that we do. And every, it's just part of our spiritual fallen DNA. And so it's, it's just there, and we struggle with it. All of us struggle with the issue of pride, and yet we often ignore it. Matter of fact, to some degree, we, we deny it. Uh, our secular world, and often the Christian world, denies it, uh, saying basically that our problems is we feel bad about ourselves or have low self-esteem, that type of thing, uh, rather than recognizing that the Scripture says very clearly one of our deepest, if not the deepest, sin in our whole life is that of pride. And all of us face it, and all of us have to deal with that. As Paul writes to the Corinthians here, they don't see themselves as proud at all. And Paul is going to reveal to them their pride. And uh, I think this is extremely instructive for all of us as well. There's two evidences of pride here in the text we're going to look at. Now, the first is their criticism of other people. Uh, we see in verse 5, which we looked at last week, it says, Therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the, the motives of man's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. You know, to a very large extent, you can uh, gauge your level of pride by your level of criticism, uh, in spirit and in word. And I, I'm not talking here now, I want to really balance this, I'm not talking about discernment and, and necessary evaluation. Scripture talks a great deal about that. For example, Jesus said in John, Matthew chapter 7, right after the, the most, you know the, you know the number one, the most famous passage of scripture in the Bible, if you ask people today, what, what, is, the, what is your favorite verse of scripture? It's in Matthew chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. Believe it or not, that is the number one. Well, right after that, Jesus goes on and says, you be real careful about false teachers. Because false teachers are out there and they're going to lead you astray. And he says you will know them by their fruits. Not just by what they teach. That's part of it. We need to discern that. But also by what they produce. Look at what they're producing. And you'll see the evidence of whether this is of God or not. So God calls us to evaluate that. Uh, he also calls us in 1 Timothy 3 when it comes to church leadership. To, uh, to uh, look at the qualifications, the spiritual qualifications of those who would lead the church. There has to be an evaluation of that. Not just everybody who, who wants to be a leader of a church, not, not because they're a good business person or have a nice suit, should be a leader of the church. And so there is a proper evaluation that God gives us there. And then uh, in chapter 5 of this book, we'll look at it in a few weeks, uh, we have a, a sin in the, in the church here that needs to be rebuked. And that, that involves a critical spirit in the right way. 
a, judge, a judgment based upon scripture of someone who is living in sin and has to be rebuked and dealt with. And so the scripture is not just saying, don't, don't ever be uh, critical. He's, we're talking here not about evaluation. We're not talking about constructive and necessary evaluation. We're talking about hypercriticism, where everyone else seems to be wrong but us. And that's where the Corinthians were at. They were, they were looking around, and they saw themselves as superior to virtually everyone, even the apostles. What an amazing amount of, of uh, audacity and arrogance we find in this church. Paul's going to reveal that in three ways here. He, he wants them to know it. He's not going to just say it. He's going to reveal it in three different ways. He says, I know you're that way. I know you're full of pride because in verse 5, you are judgmental. And we just read that verse, and we looked at that verse last week. So let me hit the highlights with you once again. The critic here, in this case, is, is passing judgment before the time. The time would be when the Lord himself passes that judgment. And going on down, they, they, they believe they can look into the hearts of people and even see their motives. And Paul refutes that, and that is what he's dealing with here. They, they think they can even see the hearts and the motives of people when God says very clearly in his word that no one can see into the hearts of people in that way. A number of years ago, I, I was with a, an older a leader, Christian leader somewhere. I can't quite remember where, but it's been many, many years. And we were uh, sitting down, and, and somebody, a young lady was playing the piano. And when uh, she got done, he turned to me and he said, uh, that was a... Uh, her playing was a demonstration straight from the flesh. Straight from the flesh. Now he was an older respected leader. I was a young person. Uh, I didn't uh, want to say much to him. But, my, but in my own mind I thought this. How does he know that? How do you know that somebody's playing the piano over here is pay, playing from the flesh or, or to honor God? You know, we can look at the exterior. We can look at some details. But how do we know that? I've listened to a lot of singers. I've listened to a lot of music, Christian music. I, I've heard a lot of preachings, a lot of teachings, and I can look at these different ones, and, and I can make a judgment, but usually that judgment's wrong. I certainly can't judge their hearts. Let's be very, very careful with that. Once we start saying we know the motives, we know the hearts of people, uh, we are on shaky ground because that's God's territory, and you don't want to get in God's boots. Leave it to Him. And so He's talking to that to these people. Secondly, he said, your standards are wrong. Not only are you judgmental, verse 6, you have wrong standards. Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may learn not to exceed what is written. Uh, Paul is uh, saying that, uh, is talking about them judging and misjudging of different ones. And he gives a personal illustration. So let's look at this. I have figuratively applied this to myself and Apollos. In other words, I want to give you an illustration of what's going on concerning myself and another Christian leader by the name of Apollos. And I want you to learn here not to, not to exceed that which is written. What is he talking about? He's talking about these people going out and setting up standards that are, un, that are beyond Scripture. Their own convictions, their own preferences, their own, own ideas, and determining uh, that such and such person does not meet their standards, which are extra biblical. He's not talking about the biblical standards and qualifications God gives us. He's talking about the standards that they have developed and brought up themselves. And he says that you are not to go beyond what is written. 
Now, this is something we, we all struggle with. We talk about this once in a while, making our convictions, our preferences, the standard by which everybody else has to live. And when we do that, that is an evidence, Paul says, of not spirituality, but pride. And these people were doing so. And they were doing so in this particular context, in, in the context of leadership. Uh, Paul is under fire. Can you believe that? And Apollos maybe to some degree as well. They were setting up standards for, for pastors and spiritual leaders that were beyond the scriptures and then criticizing the spiritual leaders for not meeting their standards. Uh, unfortunately, that has not gone away. And we deal with that in the church universal all the time, all over the world. You see it constantly. Years ago, I read a book called Lifestyle Evangelism. And the author of that book, Joe Aldridge, was a, was a president of a Bible college at the time, and a, a very well-known, well-versed pastor and so forth. And he was talking about this very issue of setting up standards for leaders that are not unbiblical. And he wrote an ad, an advertisement, that could be put in a paper to, to call for a new pastor of the church. Now this is fiction, and it's, it's silly, it's over the top, but I found it interesting and worth mentioning. So, let's not, so as I read this, don't, you know, most, nobody's going to go this far, but you get the gist. So here it is, here's the wanted ad. Wanted, minister for growing church, a real challenge for the right man, opportunity to become better acquainted with people. Applicant must offer experience as a shop worker, office manager, uh, educator, including college level, artist, salesman, diplomat, writer, theologian, politician, boy scout leader, a children worker, minor league baseball player, psychologist, funeral director, wedding consultant, master of ceremonies, circus, circus clown, missionary, and social worker. You're not laughing at me, are you? Yeah. <laughs> the right man will hold firm views on every topic but is careful not to upset people who disagree. Must be forthright but flexible, returns criticism and backbiting with Christian love and forgiveness, should have outgoing and friendly dispositions at all times, should be creative, a captivated speaker and intent listener. Um, education must be beyond a PhD requirements but also concealed in homespun modesty and folksy talk. <laughs> Able to sound learned at times and sound learned at times but most of the time talks and acts like good old Joe. Familiar with literature read by the average congregation. Applicant's wife must be stunning and plain, smartly attired but conservative in appearance, gracious and able to get along with everyone, especially women. Must be willing to work in church kitchen, teach Sunday school, babysit, run the copy machine, wait tables, never listen to gossip, never become discouraged. Directly responsible for views and conduct to all church members. This is the pastor again. He's directly responsible for views and conduct to all church members and visitors, not confined to direction or support from any one person. Salary not commensurate with experience or need. Uh, no, no overtime paid. All replies kept confidential. Anyone applying, I get this, anyone applying will undergo inve full investigation to determine sanity. Well, that is obviously over the top. Unfortunately, I've seen in, in church settings uh, things not too far from that. When that happens, when we're setting up standards beyond what Scripture has for us, uh, then we have moved to the area, area of arrogance and not biblical uh, humility. 
The only true basis then for evaluation of these things is the written word of God. This is a good verse to remember. Don't go beyond what is written. There's a lot of context where this could be valuable. Uh, because all sorts of areas. Don't go beyond what is written. You cannot know with certainty unless the word of God determines it. But in this context here, he's talking about pride. He's talking about their arrogance, setting up standards that others cannot meet. Don't go beyond that. What is the, what is the evaluation for uh, the servants of Christ in this context? Chapter 4, verse 2 has made it very plain. We saw it last week. Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. Now, there's other qualifications found in the New Testament, but Paul is hammering in right here on faithfulness, trustworthiness. That is, has been the time-honored teaching of the Scriptures and throughout church history, and yet some are moving away from it today and are actually saying that unless you're successful, and you're successful by the American extra-biblical standard, uh, then you ought not be uh, in the ministry. Your, your church isn't even very valuable. Just a couple of years ago, just a few years ago, one of the leading uh, pastors in America, one of the leading gurus out there, written books and everybody goes to his stuff, uh, did a sermon in which he criticized people who attend small churches and calling them stinking selfish. That was his term, stinking selfish. And here's what he said. He said that children who attend big churches have a better chance to make friends, while children who attend small churches grow up hating church. When I hear adults say, well, I don't like a big church, I like about 200. So he's talking about 200 or down. Uh, what does he say about them? Uh, and these people say, I, I, I want to go to a church about 200. I want to be able to know everybody. I say, you are so stinking selfish. You care nothing about the next generation. All you care about is you and your five friends. You don't care about your kids or anybody else's kids. You're like, what's up? I'm saying, if you don't go to a church large enough where you can have enough middle schoolers and high schoolers to separate them so that they can have small groups and grow up in, a, in the local church. You are a selfish adult. Get over it. Find yourself a big old church where your kids can connect with a bunch of people and grow up and love the local church. Uh, his, his thesis was this. If you have a small church, should not exist. Uh, small churches are, are developing church haters, especially among children. And a small church to them is a church of apparently 200 and down which is that 90% of all churches, matter of fact, 95% of all churches in America. So they should all fold up and go to the Walmart churches, the big box churches, because little churches have no value. Now, I've been speaking on that particular subject recently at, the convention, at a convention, and let me tell you something. The statistics show just the opposite. The statistics show that smaller churches develop more disciples than giant churches. You don't want to know why? Because in giant churches, you can go hide. And the vast majority of people are, are, are attending to, to witness and to be in, entertained and whatnot. They're not being involved in ministry. Now, I'm not saying every, the best church is 20 or 50 or 80. I'm saying there's all kinds of sizes. And, 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 and the Lord uses all kinds of people. Big churches, little churches, medium churches. But listen, the, the criteria is not whether you're a success by the American standard. The criteria is whether you're faithful to Christ. And that is what he's teaching here. Get over yourself. This leader, I'd like to say his name, but I won't. Get over yourself. Matter of fact, I got a better one here for you. 
Here's an ad in a, a missionary uh, magazine, probably New Tribes Mission magazine some years ago. Didn't say in the article, but here's what it, here's what it says. The caption begins uh, showing a young man uh, wading across a river with a large box on his back. He's a missionary. And the caption reads, Jim was voted most likely to succeed. Underneath were these words. Now listen. It's too bad. Jim had it made. Personality, initiative, a college degree with honors, success, and the good life were his for the, for the asking. Now look at him, backpacking across some jungle river, giving his life to a tribe of preliterate people, Indians, barely out of the Stone Age, painstakingly creating a written language uh, from an unintelligible babble of sounds, uh, working, uh, I lost my page over there, working night and day to, to translate the pages of the New Testament exposing the senselessness of superstition and arrogance, uh, relieving pain and building a, a uh, bridge of love and understanding to an illiterate and alienated and neglected people. And think, Jim could have been a success. Huh, I think he might be a success, according to God, right? Okay, let's press on. Okay, so he's, he's revealing the criticism of these people, and he's talking about the judging is one of the revelations of that, the, uh, the wrong standards. Now finally, the motives. Look at verse 6 at the end. He says, so that no one will become arrogant in behalf of one another, uh, uh, one against the other. Proud people uh, puff themselves up. The word arrogant here is, uh, in some translations, is translated puffed up. I really like that. Because a puffed up thing is just full of air. You might look big, you might look impressive, but it's just full of air. And that's what the arrogant person is that he's speaking of here. He's saying as these people criticize one another, uh, they're criticizing on many levels. When critical people criticize others for how they raise their kids, how they spend their money, how they live their lives, how they minister, you know, all sorts of things. They, and why do they do so? He says to puff themselves up, to make themselves look better in the eyes of somebody, whoever that might be. So Paul is saying here, look, that's the evidence. Now let's go to one more thing here. We've seen so far the critical nature of these people. Now he moves to a very interesting section of Scripture, verses 7 and 8. He's going to talk about attitude. And by the way, if you're one of these people that believe that sarcasm never has a place, you're going to have a bad day. Because this is the most sarcastic passage of Scripture, I think, in the whole Bible, or at least real close to it. So, uh, so if you're one of those sarcastic people... Uh, you might have a problem, but at the same time, you're going to like the next two verses. All right, so mixed bag for you, I guess. I don't know. Uh, verse 7, for who regards you as superior? Let's just stop with that for just a moment. You know, uh, people that are, are thinking they're superior do so for some reason. Paul wants to deal with that. You ever met somebody, not just intellectually or with abilities, but spiritually think they're better than others? Have you ever run into some people like that? You'll do that once in a while. They, they think they've cornered the market on, on ministry. They've cornered the market on, on uh, intelligence. They've cornered the market on scripture or theology. Uh, they have ar arrived. You haven't. Uh, you'll run into a few people like that. They're, they're a very obnoxious group of people. Um, the godliest people I think I've ever met didn't know they were godly. Uh, they, they knew their own issues. They knew their own problems. Uh, but the Lord knew that they were godly, and that's what matters, right? 
And so we leave it to the Lord on that. But why do these people develop a proud attitude here? Paul gives us a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, they, they do not realize the source of their blessings. And before I, before I think about that, I want to back out just one more thought. Let me give you an example here of the type of people he might be talking about. You might have heard in recent years of a group called the Caged Calvinists. You heard that term? Uh, a few years ago, the, another term came out called the Young, Restless, and Reformed. These were young adults, usually in their 20s, who had discovered Calvinistic theology. And it highly impressed them. And they began to uh, study it out and, and grow in theology, grow in, in their, what, their insights and so forth. And, and then uh, some of them moved over to what others called the caged variety, caged Calvinists. And the caged Calvinists were these young adults who had discovered something that they thought was so wonderful that they became obnoxious. They, they, they attacked everyone who didn't agree with them. They went after these people. They, they had cornered the market they thought on theology and Christian life and others had not reached up to their standard and they became these, the, these obnoxious, obnoxious, caged Calvinists who had maybe some good theology but had some really bad behavior. That's the kind of people Paul's talking about here. People who think because they have, have learned something and grown in some area of life that they are, have, are superior to others. And so that's the kind of thing we're talking about. So when he talks about in verse 7, when he starts by talking about them being superior, he, he starts asking them questions. And he gives them three questions, rapid fire, to begin to unravel who they are in their attitude. The first one is, he says, like I read already in this verse, uh, who regards you as superior? What makes you, what makes you think you're superior? You know? You remember at school or at work or someplace there was a group of kids that thought they were cool? You know? And I've seen that kind of group all my life. They, were, they thought they were cooler than everybody else. And as I've analyzed those groups over the years, I've always wondered, wonder why they think they're cool. As I look at them, they're not any better looking than most, usually. They're not any particularly smarter. They're not, uh, they're not uh, the ones I've worked with weren't very good at what they were supposed to be doing, like working. Uh, but they thought they were cool. I remember working at a place, uh, going to college, a book place, and at lunch, uh, we had maybe 50 guys in there, 50 people in there wor who were workers. We all sat together. There was two guys who were too cool to sit with us, so they sat at the cool table. And there was one guy who wanted to be cool. He didn't want to be with us peons, so he drifted over. They didn't like him, but, but he, was, he stayed there anyway. They were cool. Really. And I want, this is a good verse for them. Who, who regards you as cool? Uh, who, who said you're cool? And why does it matter anyway? Right? So Paul is kind of hammering at, at them right here. Why, why are we superior? You know? Uh, well, they would say, well, we're superior because we, we are hard workers. We're superior because we know theology. We're superior because we have better education and more talent and know the Bible better. So Paul asks a second question. You think so? Well, let's go on then. What do you have that you did not receive? Well, okay. I mean, well, who gave you your brains so that you could know this stuff? Well, they would say, well, I was born with them, I guess, but I studied hard. Well, who gave you the ability to study hard? Well, I, I guess it came from God, but, but I applied what I learned, but who gave you the insight to apply what you learned? You see, he's cornering them. They're getting to a place where they have no way to wiggle around what he's saying because everything's being traced back to God. Everything they have has come to them from God. 
So he asks a third question. What, what do you have to boast about, he says, at the end of this verse. And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? If it's a gift, what are you bragging about? You know, if you have a position, if you have some, some superior talent, if you have uh, some brilliance, if, if we, even if you know because you know Christ, think about that. Some people are actually arrogant because they're Christians. You know, I, I looked at the, the gospel, I heard the message of Christ's saving grace, and I was smart enough to embrace it and place my faith in Christ for the forgiveness of my sin, and the people around me weren't that smart. Pure arrogance. Even the gift of salvation is a gift of salvation. God gave it to you. You didn't earn it. And so he's backed them in the corner. What do you have to boast about? If there's anybody who was a self-made man, it would be Paul, wouldn't it? I mean, he, he was raised uh, uh, under the greatest of teachers. He ra- rose to the top of his class. Not only the top of his class, but the top of his profession. Uh, he had uh, studied the word. He had applied it to his life. He, he controlled his body so that he didn't fall into sin. He traveled and suffered all over the world for Jesus Christ. Nobody, not even God, did those things for Paul. But you know what Paul said? I'm not going to go to it for time. But in 1 Corinthians 15.10, when he was talking about the fact that he had been appointed an apostle, here's what his testimony is. 1 Corinthians 15.10, he said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Not my own abilities, not my own efforts, by the grace of God. And when we start considering what he's saying here in this simple verse that most, most often we probably just fly right through, we start thinking about what he's saying there, it doesn't leave room for pride. It leads us to humility for this reason. If you know Christ as your Savior, you have been graced. It's not your ability, it's not your insight, you have been graced by God. So one of the reasons for pride is they did not realize their source of blessing, which was God. Secondly, because they did not realize what they are or what they were. Verse 8. Now this is where it gets fun for you sarcastic people. Okay? It really gets good here. If you think Paul's being literal here, uh, you're, you're wrong. Okay? Verse 8. You are already filled. Do you think he's telling them they're, they're, they've got it made? They've, they've arrived? Of course not. He's being sarcastic here. You are already filled, he said. Now there's three. The, the Corinthians possessed a views of themselves then that, that was prideful. Paul then shows three views of themselves that was dominating their lives that were false. They viewed themselves in three ways that was not true. And each builds on the other. First of all, they were satisfied with their their selves, they're satisfied with their growth. They're already filled. The, the Greek word here for already filled means to glut. It's like going to one of those buffets and when you wobble out of the room, uh, you know you're full. I, I'm at a dilemma. I mentioned this before. I have two natures, not the old and new. I have those two, but I've got, I've got uh, two things. I've got a nature in which I like food and here it all is. Okay, I've got another thing over here that says I don't want to gain weight. Okay, but I've got another thing. I've got three natures. The other one is I'm stingy. I just paid 10 bucks to eat at Pizza Ranch, and I'm going to walk out of here with 10 bucks or maybe 15 bucks, maybe 30 bucks worth of food. 
One way or the other, I'm going out of here with my money's worth. Even if I gain five pounds, I'm going to do it. That's the word, okay? That's the word glut. You just packed it in there. You can hardly move. You can hardly wobble. But you're full. That's the word. That's what he's saying. You're already filled. Is that, is that true of them? Are they just filled with, with all this stuff, this knowledge, this insight, this maturity? He isn't saying that. But that's what they thought about themselves. We have it all. We're satisfied. Even oversatisfied. Secondly, they felt they had enough. They were rich, he said. This verse. You've already become rich. I don't know many people that think they're rich even when, or would say they're rich even if they are rich. A rich implies that they have more than you need. And so he's, these people had, had really were so rich, I'll catch this, in six years of their existence, they believe they have outgrown the Apostle Paul. They are beyond him. They are rich, and they're looking down on poor old Paul. That's what he's talking about here. And then finally, they not only are that, but they now believe they rule. In verse 8, he goes on. He says, and you have become kings without us. What a statement. You now believe that you are kings. You now believe you rule. You now believe that you are the teacher of the apostle. You know more than him. That's what you think. They had no desire for growth because they had arrived. Folks, that's a dangerous place to be. I want you to go to Philippians chapter 3 for a moment. Just one passage we'll look at today. Philippians 3 verse 12. The apostle Paul well into his ministry. He says this in verse 12. This is his testimony. Philippians 3.12 says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upper calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's his testimony. I, yeah, I haven't arrived yet, he said. I'm growing. This is the Apostle Paul, well into his ministry in life. They said, I'm pressing on. I have not arrived. I'm moving forward. Uh, friends, never ever become satisfied with your spiritual life. It's easy to do after you've been a Christian for 20 years or so. You know, I've, I've, I've been through all the courses. I've taken all the classes. I've read my Bible through several times. I've ministered. I'm, that's, that's enough. That's enough. I don't need to go much further than that. It's nonsense. Never arrive. Always grow. Someone who says, uh, like anyone who coasts, there's only one place for them to go. That's downhill. Keep alive. Keep challenging yourself. For the, for the day you quit, growth stops and decay begins. The burden of pride is a heavy one to bear. Think how much it hurts you when somebody says something badly about you. And as long as you're puffed up, there's always going to be someone who delights in busting your bubble. A.W. Tozer wrote a very wonderful, insightful section in his book, The Pursuit of God. He was dealing with the verse, the verse of Scripture in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, that says, The meek shall inherit the earth. And here's what he said. I'm going to read, paraphrase his closing remarks in that chapter for your edification. I hope you can follow. He says, as long as you believe that you have the right to be respected, 
loved, talked kindly about, you will cringe under each criticism. You will smart under every slight. You may eat, spend sleepless nights when another's chosen over you. Such a burden is not necessary to bear. Jesus calls us to his rest, and humility or meekness is his method. The meek person cares not at all who is greater than he, for he decided long ago that the esteem of the world is not worth the effort. He can say, oh, so I've been overlooked. I've been placed, uh, uh, someone else has been placed before me. They're whispering that I'm pretty small stuff after all. Well, they're right. But I no longer have to care what people think. The meek person is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of their own inferiority. Rather, they're strong and sometimes even bold. But they stop fooling themselves about themselves. They have accepted God's estimate of them. They know well that the world will never see them as God sees them, and they've stopped caring. They rest content in the Lord's evaluation. They will be patient to wait for the day when everything gets to see, will get its own price tag, and real worth will come into its own. And then I quote, This man is at peace with himself and with his God, and actually is the only one at peace with the world. No wonder Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's well worth pondering this afternoon, isn't it? I hope you take those words to heart and give us some thoughts today. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that all of us are infected with the disease of sin, and pride is part of that. Lord, we pray for our own lives as we look at our hearts, at ourselves, and determine to deal with things as you bring to our attention, that we might walk humbly before you and not proudly. May this passage have spoken to our hearts and given us insight into living for Christ. We pray in your name. Amen.